0: You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is org.
1: Now for this week's message.
0: Well, it's an honor to be here and to be up here in in front of you. Uh, It's been an interesting and long journey, and through this whole process, I've just been praying that God would put uh, me, myself, my family where God wanted us, and also if this is what is right for Fur Road, that this would all work well and be in His plan and in His will. Uh, And so I appreciate your prayers for the team that has put this all together, and really uh, am, am honored to be up here. Uh, today in this position with this opportunity. So thank you all for the prayers that have gotten us to this day uh, and uh, for everything that you've done and put into this process. So uh, one of the things that I love about uh, being a Christian is the opportunity to study God's Word. I think God's Word is one of the most amazing things that we have on this earth and it's like this ocean that is full of things that you can discover uh, and to dive into and one of the amazing things about it is that the more you dive into it, the more you discover, the more you realize how much more there is left to discover. It's this endless depth of discovery. And so one of my favorite things as a pastor is to be able to have that opportunity to dedicate large portions of my life to diving into and exploring the different facets and the different areas of scripture. And today I'm uh, bringing to you something that I've dove into and, and tried to discover and want to kind of flesh out with you uh, through this message. And that is this idea of the genius of Jesus. Uh, that's the title of this sermon. And today we're going to just talk about specifically the genius of good. And something that is interwoven into this is something that I wasn't expecting to dive into in this process. And that is situational Ethics. Just a raise of hands. how many of you are aware of situational ethics? Okay, so a, a good portion of you uh, were ahead of me then, probably. Uh, but today we're going to talk about that, and I can remember and reflect back on uh, when I dealt with situational ethics in a ministry in kind of a, a more light-hearted way. And that was through this game that we called uh, "Would You Rather?" Uh, And it's a game, have you played this? Anybody played Would You Rather? It's when you pit two questions together, Uh, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're good choices, sometimes neither one of them are good choices, sometimes both options put you in an uncomfortable situation where you have to squirm a little bit. And so I'm going to give you some uh, examples of what situational Would You Rather ethics might be. And so, I enjoy audience participation, it's something I do. So if you, uh, there's gonna be two choices. Would you rather the first option or would you rather the second option? And so if you would rather the first option after we read the question, you can raise your hand. Uh, If you would rather the second option, then leave your hand down. It's my way of getting 100% audience participation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, It's not my first time up here. And so if you don't raise your hand, you're automatically uh, relegated to that second choice, which might not always be the best one. All right, so let's get into some of these. Uh, Would you rather be beautiful and stupid or unattractive but a genius? So if you'd rather be beautiful and stupid, raise your hand, all right? Would you, okay, so the rest of you would rather be unattractive and geniuses. All right, we have a room full of of smart people here probably. All right, Uh, there's also a room full of beautiful people. All right, don't get me wrong. All right, would you rather talk like Yoda Or breathe like Darth Vader. (laughs) So more people would rather talk like Yoda. We have some heavy breathers. That would be like distracting to go through life. Uh, Your spouses are hating the second choice right now. Um, Yeah. And the third thing, would you rather end world hunger or eliminate cancer? Mm. So a little tougher here. All right. Good responses. Most of you say eliminate cancer or just aren't playing. All right. Number four. Would you rather see Jesus perform a miracle or perform a miracle from God? Would you rather watch Jesus do that? All right. Good. A lot of responses there. Uh, And our next one. Would you rather turn your pet into a, a pound or press a button that would kill a random stranger? Told you we were going to make you squirm a little bit here. All right. So we have some. (laughs) All right. And and the last one and probably the worst one that I hope none of you ever find yourself in. If there was a fire in your house, would you rather save your child or your spouse? Hmm. So, all right. Okay. A lot of discussion going on there, a lot of, uh, yeah. (laughs) So some of you would define a few of those questions as types of situational ethics where there really isn't a right answer. The reason for that game was to give us a jumping off of point into the idea of situational ethics, the topic that we're going to dive into a little deeper today. And I've learned in preparation for this sermon that in the 70s, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the idea of situational ethics. And uh, probably some of you lived through that or have wrestled with that or remember when that first came on the scene. And from my research, it seemed like people of faith felt like it was wrong to think that ethics could ever be situational. For many people of faith, those who had grown up in the Bible Belt or in a Christian bubble, the whole idea of situational ethics has been viewed as untenable. To think that ethics would ever be situational could be a little bit triggering. Because we know that everything either either right or wrong. Everything can either be black or white, either biblical or unbiblical. And I've probably been there too, but the longer I've lived and interacted with Scripture and people, I think one of the interesting intersections in the practicality of Christianity is our faith in action, where our intellectual acknowledgement of truth and our practical application of truth come in conflict with each other. When you think about it, there's many aspects of our life that is actually a dynamic of this. Of situational ethics where you have to choose between two outcomes that might not necessarily be uh, as easy as you think whether they might not be absolutely right or wrong as they appear on the surface i think there are definitely moments when everything is clear where there's obviously a right choice and a wrong choice when it comes to biblical teachings but i think there also is sometimes in our world where not everything is always right and where something is not always wrong. Sometimes circumstances impact our answers. And if I were to ask you, uh, right or wrong, about some certain things, I think that we can agree on the surface it seems right, but if we dive a little deeper, they may not be as clear cut as we think at first. If I was to ask you the question, is it okay to speed? Some of you might have done that on your way here. Uh, I'm not judging you, but is it okay to speed when you're driving in your car? Most of us would say from the biblical perspective that, that is right that you is not okay to speed. But if we throw in a little situational uh, situation here. Is, if you were, is it okay to speed if you have a relative that is needing emergency care? then we might waver a little bit on whether that's right or wrong. Is it okay to steal? Most of us on the surface would say that's definitely wrong, but if you ever found yourself in a situation where unfortunately you were poor, out of a job, had a family that need fed, and you were given the opportunity and enforced into a situation where you might have to steal to help your family survive, might divide the room a little bit more on whether that's right or wrong. You know, there are different things like that. Uh, Also, another situation might be, is it okay to take a child away from their parents? On the surface, we would say, no, you should never do that. But if you have the situation that they are being abused, our thoughts might change. And so those are some examples of situational ethics where it might look like something is absolutely right or wrong. Everything is black or white, and there's clearly one way or another to do those. But then when you look at the situation, it, it kind of changes. You know, in my life growing up, I think a lot of the times i tried to see things as black and white. But as a pastor who has sat down with lots of people and heard lots of stories with lots of different situations, as you hear hours of heartbreaks and struggles, the situations and, that they are wrestling with, the biblical way to live out life situations, there's many times that the clear black and white fades to something more of a gray. So I think as Christians, we wrestle with this. How do I decide what stays black and white, but what kind of falls into that gray area? The source that I turn to help us to guide in this is obviously the Bible, and today I want us to look at one of the passages. And so if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be turning into Matthew 12, 1 through 14. And it's a situation where Jesus finds himself in the middle of an ethical dilemma. And spoiler alert, it doesn't do what pe- He doesn't do what some people think is right. In fact, the religious elite were determined to point out just how. Wrong Jesus was in this situation. So instead of looking at things as just right and wrong, we can look through the scripture how Jesus teaches them, and hopefully us, the genius of doing good. Let's read this passage beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick and eat some of the heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus is being criticized for doing something wrong that they so clearly knew was right. He, they knew that he was breaking the Sabbath. It's definitely the wrong thing to do. If you read the law, it tells you not to work on the Sabbath. Jesus, you as a rabbi, should know this. And they were right. It was unlawful. It was the wrong thing to do according to the law. And Jesus would have known this. But let's look at Jesus' response and see the geniusness of it. He said to them, "'Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat?' But only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? So Jesus brings up this situation that they would have been clearly familiar with. A situation where things got a little gray, where David needed to feed his army. And they ate something that they weren't necessarily supposed to eat. The stuff that was dedicated to God. And so they would have known David, they would have been aware of this story, and so it kind of shuts them up a little bit and Jesus G- and uses, uses this as an opportunity to teach. And so he attempts to change their perspective. In verse 6, 7, and 8 it says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what that means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus forces them into this gray area between their right and wrong. They were right that God had established a law, that only the priests were to eat the showbread, but there was this man in physical need and there was a higher law of God that ministers to men's physical needs. Jesus was stating there are scenarios that supersede some things. If someone is starving, if a man is hungry, then there are higher laws that deal with the preservation of life over the preservation of law. And he points out their faulty theology. So that is the genius of Jesus, his ability to put what he preaches into practice. So he creates this circumstance that challenges their ethics and then he teaches and he defends his actions. And so not only does he talk about this, not only does he give examples of this, but then he really puts them in an uncomfortable situation just to kind of needle it in there a little bit more and to see how they really will respond and if they've learned anything at all. In verse 9, he says, moving on from there, he entered into their synagogue There, he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into the pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So is it lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath? Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. So if you were there in that synagogue... And Jesus and these people come in, and they're having this debate over what's good to do on the Sabbath, what's work and what's not work, and you see Jesus perform this miracle where someone's hand is clearly restored. There's no doubt that God, that Jesus has the power of God. How do you think you would respond in that situation? I think on the surface, most of us would expect everyone in that room to start praising God, to say, hey, Jesus, uh, or maybe uh, they, they would have ex- been excited to been a part of that. They would have been ready to tell their family members. Maybe someone would have stepped up there and said, hey, Jesus, I've got this hip that's been giving me trouble. You want to take a look at it too, right? We might have had that type of reaction. And uh, you'd expect them to say, Jesus, you know what? You are right. We see your point and we understand we get it. But that's not how these Pharisees respond. It's kind of like that proud spouse who won't ever say the words, I'm sorry, or I'm wrong. The Pharisees do something unexpected. Verse 14, it says, So that the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might kill him. It's not how you expect someone to respond to a miracle done in the front of them. It made him angry because Jesus slices through these layers and, and he doesn't ask if it's the right or wrong thing because clearly the Sabbath states that what is right and wrong and maybe more importantly to the Pharisees this was a wrong thing to do but Jesus' genius asked is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath and he asked this question what would you rather I do? Would you rather me follow the letter of the law and leave someone in suffering or do something good by healing someone on the Sabbath? We all know how you respond to those situations personally, but what about collectively? Jesus says and does some of the, something good for someone else even though it's not, quote-unquote, the right thing to do. So we see the Pharisees' commitment to do the right override their willingness to do something good and instead of celebrating a miracle they criticize the miracle worker instead of celebrating a changed life they go off to collaborate how to end a life in this passage Jesus' good deed exposes their bad intentions so instead of walking away from it like the pharisees let's walk this back a little and dive into the story of situational ethics. What made it good for Jesus to heal this man? And if we look at it, it was the good that motivated Jesus. His actions were done out of love for this man. And that was the genius that he was trying to teach, and really should become the genius of us as we handle situational ethics. We should learn the way that we live out and the way that we learn things is this, that doing the good should always be motivated by love. Doing the good should always be motivated by love. This truth is exactly what motivates God in his relationship with us, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I am so glad that, Dad, God, that God, Dad, God, same thing, right? That God doesn't always do the right thing, quote unquote. Because if we are truly looking for justice, if we're looking for someone who always does the just things in terms of what we deserve, I'm telling you, doing the right thing towards me would not have been a great experience for me. We see the scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all have fallen beneath God's standard of being able to do what is truly right and wrong. And what he has created humanity to become, the just thing that we all deserve, would for be for God to give up on all of us and to never give us an opportunity to come into relationship with him. You just look at cross-humanity doesn't take long to see injustices. We can all find people who are filled with pride. We see where selfishness destroys things. We see the evil that crops up unexpectedly. We see the battles between family members. We see the division everywhere. We see hate-filling things. And that's just what goes on in churches. Because seriously, if you were God, would you want every Christian you've ever met in your family? Most of us can probably think of a few that we would not want to include. There are some people who are very dysfunctional Christians, and we've probably all been that at some point in time. There's dysfunctional churches, but God loves all of them. What would be right for God to do, what would be just, is to wipe us all out. But God, in the most extraordinary of ways, goes beyond doing the right thing to doing the good thing. In Psalm 86, 5, it says, You, Lord, forgive and are good, abounding in love to all who call to you. This is what makes the God of our of our Bible special. God is always motivated by doing the good thing because He loves us instead of judging me, which would be the right thing to do. I don't know about you, but I deserve to be condemned. And I'm so grateful and thankful that God is abounding in love and is willing to forgive me in all the stupid things that I do. God sent his son, Jesus, the one we read about in this story, to earth as an action of his abounding love. To live the life that he did, to have the ministry that he did, to change and challenge people like he did. And ultimately to die the death that he did, so that we could be saved and forgiven. All of our sins contribute to that. And it's amazing that God would still love us. That God would still send his son. That he would still be willing to forgive our sins. But that's his love. action because when you really think about it as we think about Jesus and what he went through as we think about him on the cross and the pain that he went through the anguish that he felt it's not really right for someone like Jesus to pay for the price of our wrong decisions that's not really the right thing to have happen it isn't the right thing for Jesus to never suffer because he was never wrong. It isn't the right thing for Jesus to be crucified because he was wonderful and perfect and holy. It's the right thing because Jesus would, should be worshipped and celebrated rather than criticized and condemned. It can't be in any imaginal reality for Jesus to carry the weight of our sin, our punishment on the cross. When you think about that, that just isn't right. But for Jesus, it was more about doing the good thing because he loves us. And really, he understood that he was the only one that could do that for us. He was the only one that could die for the sins of the world. He was the only one that could be the sacrifice to set us free. And he did that for us so that we could see what it looks like for us to go beyond the right to do good. Jesus is the ultimate example of how we should live our lives, how we can do the good things and love other people. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection paint this picture for us to dive in, to discover, and to explore, and expound on. And we st- when we see the way that Jesus lived his life, we see the power of the good like in this passage. We should be motivated by his love for other people knowing that he also loves us. Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I think one of the traps of the religious is our quest to do the right thing all the time. We read the Bible as a rule book instead of a guidebook. And sometimes if we read it as that and we try to memorize the rules that we have to follow and we live our life based on checkboxes and whether we're right or wrong and we criticize and condemn other people whether we think they're right or they're wrong, I think sometimes we miss a little bit of the opportunity to do the good, to share the love of God that he has shared with us. And we might need to reevaluate our approach and our application because Jesus showed us a side of God who always does the right thing because he always does the good thing. In Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that for those who love God, that is, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things are working together for good. Sometimes it doesn't look like that in our world, but that is truly what is going on. Jesus' life, his lessons, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all work together for the good of us and it should teach us to do the good that God created us to do by loving God and loving people. Because in life, doing the good is always right. Even though sometimes doing what looks right can be a way of avoiding the good. See, Jesus never hesitated to do the good. He didn't hesitate to heal on the Sabbath. He understood and wants us to understand and get the genius of the good. God would never create a day that would abdicate us from doing the good. And here's another layer of the genius. Everyone can and always should choose to do the good. Everybody in this room is equipped and able to do good. Sometimes we fail in doing the right and the wrong, but we all have the capacity to do good every single day. We are given that choice, if you will. Would you rather do the good today or would you rather do something else? I appreciate the heart of Fur Road Church as uh, we've gone through this process and getting to hear some of the things that happen through you guys collectively. Things like the Dollar Club and the Big Serve Day, where there is an opportunity to go out and show God's love to the community. And today, I also want to further challenge you, rather than doing things just collectively, to do things individually. Because God calls us to do good individually. We need to turn the genius of Jesus into the genius of us. And it can be one of the most challenging things to put into practice what Jesus preaches. It can be hard to lock into what God might actually want you to do when you think about it specifically. So to make it a little bit easier, I want you to just think about this. What are the things that you're good at? We all have something that we're good at. It might be sports, it might be fishing, it might be teaching, it might be juggling, it might be compassion, it might be praying, it might be listening, connecting. We're all good at something. And so, evaluate what time you have, what talent you have, what treasures God might have blessed you with, and look at that as a starting point. Anything good has blessed you, that God has blessed you with can be used to bless and do something good. For others. And so, this is really the question I want us to wrestle with, or maybe not wrestle with, but live out and process and think this week. What would God rather have you do today? What would God rather have you do today? Use that to do good, to share God's love and the gospel message to give hope to the hopeless, to extend God's grace to the burdened, to help heal the brokenness in people's lives. Because when we use what we know, we can impact, use it to impact who you know. Use what you know to impact those who you know. You probably have people in your life that you know need something, who need some good in their life. You know, and you think about it, sometimes we wrestle with what is right and what is good. You know, God might put it on your heart that the right thing would be maybe to miss a Sunday service, to go and do something good for somebody. Maybe you skip out on going to church because God put on your heart an opportunity to share a meal with somebody who's hurting. And you just go and sit with them instead. It might not be right to take up. Uh, you know, some of us would view it as wrong or might even might be right to go to a bar, but maybe that's what God is calling you to do, to go with this coworker who is just going through life, and you just need to go and sit with them in an environment that you might view as a wrong place to be, and maybe you don't solve any of the world's problems that night but maybe it opens up opportunities later on where you can offer some helpful, spiritual, biblical advice after listening to their problems. You know, it might not be the right thing to do to watch a football game with a Broncos fan, right? (laughs) But it might be a good thing for them to be loved instead of hated, and we all know that they need a lot of prayer. (laughs) Because ultimately, when we do the most good, we can change someone's eternity if you are willing to commit to doing the good god wants you to i would ask that you just close your eyes and i'm going to uh, pray this prayer and i just want you to pray with me to dedicate yourself to doing the most good in someone's life god we just ask that you would allow us to do the good that you have created us to do Help us to understand how you have created us. Lord, reveal to me the people that you want me to love. God, give me your eyes so that I can see the people's hearts fully. God, give me your ears so I can listen to their heart hurts intently. God, give me your hands so that I can serve others humbly. God, give me your feet so I can go to the needed places timely. God, give me your good heart so that I can love people the way that you do. Amen.
1: Talk about making things easier for the person giving the communion meditation. The whole purpose of the communion, the very thing that it's supposed to remind us of, has already been stated in the sermon. It just was not fair. It was not just. For Jesus to be condemned of sedition, treason, blasphemy, condemned to death. And it is not fair, it is not just for me to be judged worthy fair. It just isn't just. But we are given a reminder on a regular basis that that was what God planned. That was what he put into the situation. What he determined would